Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. So, Amos chapter 5. Hear this word, O house of Israel. This lament I take up concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again, deserted to her own land, with no one to lift her up. This is what the sovereign Lord says. The city that marches out a thousand strong for Israel will only have a hundred left. The town that marches out a hundred strong will only will have only ten left. This is what the Lord says to the house of Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile. And Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. Or he will sweep through the house of Joseph like a fire. It will devour. And Bethel will have no one to quench it. You who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground, he who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns blackness into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them over the face of the land, the Lord is his name. He flashes destruction on the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. You hate the one who reproves in court and despise him who tells the truth. You trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. Therefore, though you have built strong mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted Lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. You oppress the righteous and take bribes and you, dis- you deprive the good of justice in the courts. The poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent man keeps quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good. 
Maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord God Almighty says. There will be wailing in all the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards. For I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark without a ray of brightness? I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. Let's pray as we stand. Revive your church, O Lord, in grace and power draw near. We pray that you would speak with a voice that wakes the dead. Make us here tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please do sit. And please find that Bible that you had just a moment ago. And I turn back to Amos chapter 5, page 919. That's a long chapter, lots to cover, so make sure... You can see one of those, share with your neighbor if you need, as we dot around that passage. Sometimes I really despair at the things my parents watch on television. I don't know if I'm alone in that. And uh, at the risk of offending probably about a third of you, Uh, It seems like there's a a particular brand of trashy early evening murder mystery drama which has almost unlimited appeal with the over 65s. Now, I reckon the pinnacle of this kind of programming uh, is undoubtedly uh, the infamous 
Midsummer Murders. Now, I clearly don't enjoy this show, and I've only watched it, you'll understand, for research purposes. Uh, but the basic structure seems to work like this. Uh, the viewer is presented with uh, pristine, uh, idyllic, uh, picture postcard setting. And in fact, if it wasn't for the sort of bizarrely high murder rate, um, I reckon the village of Midsummer would be just about one of the nicest places to live. You've probably seen it. Every garden is uh, meticulously cultivated. All of the doors are brightly painted. Uh, the locals seem faultlessly accommodating. Uh, they're all even politely religious, and Reverend Winklebottom's parish mass is always well attended by ladies wearing the most beautiful hats every Sunday morning. But uh, following the obligatory gruesome murder, and as DCI John Barnaby, I've got his name right, begins to scratch beneath the surface. Uh, soon you realise that pristine village life isn't that at all. You begin to see that this beautiful, uh, refined place, all the beauty, all the refinement, it's really just a sham, and it's just skin deep. See, really, the vicar is sleeping with a parish gardener's wife, whose husband really knows and is secretly blackmailing the good reverend for large sums of money, which he doesn't have, so he's borrowing it from the greengrocer, uh, who, unbeknown to the rest of us, secretly operates as a loan shark. And all of this happens under the unfaltering gaze of elderly Miss Jones and Miss Barclay, uh, who swear their sisters, though no one can account for the discrepancy in surname, and are probably hiding some grim secret from the past that they refuse to talk about. But I digress. <laughs> uh, in a much more serious way, um, that is the state of God's people in Amos chapter 5. See, on the face of it, they seem really prosperous, they seem pretty secure. They even seem like a deeply religious lot. In fact, if you've been here for previous weeks uh, through this series, you'll remember that's one of the reasons that they're a bit reluctant to listen to Amos's warnings um, of judgment. Just seems like the wrong message. I mean, for sure, there have been plenty of times in Israel's history when uh, things have been a bit more shaky, they've been a bit politically vulnerable or materially poor. But just now, things just seem pretty good. You know, there's no enemy camps on the border, and economically, the rich, at least, are getting richer. So why should they listen to a bunch of messages about woe and judgment when things just seem more right? Not to mention the fact that Amos isn't local. He's come up from the southern kingdom of Judah. And I reckon that's a bit like when uh, George Osborne traveled up to Scotland to speak in favor of the Better Together campaign, and I'm told that only succeeded in bumping up the Yes to Independence campaign in the polls. See, as far as the Israelites are concerned, Amos is just the wrong man with the wrong message because life just seems pretty good and religious life particularly seems pretty pristine. But like the village of Midsummer, just as soon as you scratch below the surface, you begin to see that the heart of society is just rotten. Uh, all the sweetness the pristine religious presentation. It's just a sham. It's just like a veneer. It's the first point if you're taking notes. A thin veneer. Religious life seems to be thriving. Look at verse 18, for example. Like every good religious Jew, these are people who say, at least, that they long for the day of the Lord. That's the day when God comes in judgment to, to destroy the wicked and to vindicate his righteous people. 
you can see, look again at verse 21, that, that this is a, a place where the church calendar, if I can put it that way, is packed with events. They've got the feast and the assemblies. There's the sacrifices and the offerings. Uh, in our terms, we're talking like a full program for, full eight, for all ages, endless services, conferences, small groups, gatherings, weekends away. And you can add to that, verse 23, a thriving music ministry. How appropriate. We're talking a myriad of weekly rehearsals, I reckon at least twice yearly conferences. These are the guys who seem to have a new worship album out every other month. And perhaps the sweet sound of singing drifts over the lush vineyards of verse 11 that have been planted next to the expensive stone mansions. Life just seems pretty good. Before we go any further, just pause for a moment and draw the lines from them to us. It's not hard to see the similarities in some ways. Here's an active church in a prosperous place. And here in Fullwood too, as it has this evening, the weekly sound of singing drifts across pleasant Fullwood gardens planted next to impressive houses. Here's a people that look a lot like us. So if nothing else tonight, we've got to listen very carefully to these warnings to make sure we don't make the same mistakes. This isn't too strange an image. If Israel's worship were a piece of furniture, it would look like a beautifully crafted chair, skillfully carved, crafted from the finest oak. That is until you got up close and you saw that that finest oak was actually just a cheap veneer all too easily peeled back to show just a rotten core riddled with woodworm. And that is true because all of this frenetic religious activity, it's just a sham. It's just a fake. It's like a thin veneer on a rotten interior. There's the second point if you're taking notes. A rotten interior. Now, I regularly get the most amazing emails uh, informing me that my long-lost, usually Nigerian relative has died and left me a fortune. And amazingly, it always seems that this relative had royal connections and so possessed a very large fortune. And this fortune has been left to me. uh, And if I'll only pass on my bank details and passwords, then these friendly people will be pleased to transfer the money to me right away. Israelite religion, I reckon here, has got all the substance and legitimacy of an internet banking scam. How do we know? Well, for all their, what you might call, uh, false fervency at the festival. See, it's betrayed by what is really an apathy for God's word. And all their false piety when it comes to praising God... Well, it's just betrayed because they've got grubby financial affairs. And for all their showy religion at at, at the shrine and at the altar, well, it's all exposed as false because in the marketplace and the courtroom, well, there they oppress the poor and they do dodgy deals. Favours for friends, jobs for the boys, backhanders for the judge, political immunity for the powerful, that kind of thing. See, for all their pristine religion, they are, verse 7, those who turn justice into bitterness, cast righteousness to the ground. Verse 10, who hate the one who reproves in court and despise him who tells the truth. They are people, verse 12, who oppress the righteous and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. 
You can imagine in in Matthew 15 when when Jesus quotes from Isaiah and says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Well, you can imagine he could have been talking about a people just like this. And so you see, for all their endless gatherings, God says, verse 21, "I, I hate, hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. And for all the noise of their songs, verse 23, God says, shut up. Just shut up. I can't bear to listen to your hypocrisy anymore. And as for those Israelites who said that they were longing for the day of the Lord, you know, the day when God judges the wicked and vindicates the righteous, they they thought it was going to be sweetness and light because they thought they were on the right side of it. No, says God. Not sweetness and light, not light for you, darkness, thick darkness, gloom, not light. There's brilliant imagery there, isn't there? It's like a man in a forest full of trees. And what does he come across? A lion, a lion. And he runs from the lion and he thinks he's got away. And do you know what he sees next? A bear. It's a bear. And he runs from the bear And what does he find? A little hut, safety at last. And then he goes through the door and he shuts it behind him and he bolts it and he locks it and he goes in and he rests his hand on the wall and gets bitten by a snake. For you, the day of the Lord is not light but darkness because you're on the wrong side of it, not the right. This is a society for all it's obsessed with the trappings of religion and they're doing the easy task of putting on a good show See, they've they've happily abandoned what is the hard work of really listening to God. And as a result, they no longer know and they no longer love the things that God loves. What do we hear in Psalm 99? The king, that's God. The king is mighty. He loves justice. And here is a people, verse 12, who oppress the righteous, take bribes, who deprive the poor of justice in the courts. And at the risk of spoiling your Sunday evening, it's it's just all really sad, isn't it? Isn't it just sad? See, the God who who loves righteousness and and justice, the same God who is compassionate and gracious and slow to get angry and full of love and faithfulness, what has he done? Well, he's chosen and loved and set aside a people for himself so that they will show and model what it looks like to be God's children. And what has become of this people that God has chosen? Are they like the Lord? No, they hate righteousness. They seem to despise and withhold justice. They are those of whom Paul in Romans 1.31 could have said, are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And it's just sad. And sad's about right. Did you see the heading at the beginning? This is God's lament over his people. In fact, the commentators say that Amos has structured this passage and used a sort of poetical style, which which in its day would have been for a funeral lament. Verse 1, fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again, deserted in her own land, with no one to lift her up. And that image of a funeral, I reckon is just about right, isn't it? Because Israel's behavior, it's only leading one way. You can't have missed that as we read the passage. 
Where is it leading? Judgment and death. The chapter's just shot through with warnings about the trajectory that they're on. And the imagery is very arresting, isn't it? Look there at verse 3. A city that marches out a thousand strong for Israel will have only a hundred left. Imagine the the image of a, a vast army marching out to war, beautifully arrayed, adorned, bright uniforms, flags unfurled, rank upon rank. How do they return? Humbled, utterly humbled, bloodied, broken, a few stragglers. What an image of the judgment the Lord will bring. Can you imagine the grief and the wailing in a time like that? It's verse 16. Wailing in the streets, cries of anguish in the public squares. We had a spell in hospital with our our youngest Cameron a few weeks back. And this really isn't a cheery story, but there was a boy in the room next door who, who died while we were there. And I will just never forget the the unrelenting sound of wailing that came through the wall. Such are the warnings of God's judgment when it comes to the trajectory that his people are on. And perhaps most disturbingly, look how that little section ends in verse 17. They will be wailing in the vineyards, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Back in Exodus... God passed over his people, didn't he? He brought judgment on Israel's oppressors, but he passed over his people graciously. He led them free from oppression and slavery, not anymore. God says, I won't pass over, I will pass through in judgment, and the the results are utterly harrowing. Now look, I don't need to tell you of stories of Christians who've, who've been in this way exposed as lacking integrity, you know, living wickedly while maintaining some kind of religious pretense. We all know those sad stories and there are too many of them. It's also easy to look at other people, isn't it, and harder to examine ourselves. And I guess one kind of question we ought to ask from a passage like this is, what are we doing on Monday which exposes our Sunday devotion as just hollow? And I don't say that to undermine our confidence in the gospel. In fact, the very purpose of a prophet's warnings, warnings of judgment like this, is always to encourage this kind of self-examination. In the end, it's kind of God, isn't it? He could have just got straight on with the judgment, but what do we get instead? A warning. Always a warning, so there's always opportunity to find forgiveness and change. Isn't that kind of God? We were coming out of church uh, just last Sunday morning and our eldest, Ruth, who's three, started for some reason just running as fast as she could towards the road. And I tell you, my shout was severe and it was loud and she had to stop because she was heading for what was at that time a busy road. The Lord does not want his people to face death and judgment. Brings us to the third point. One way to live. Just one way to live. Look, you might ask, what kind of a hope is there for people like this? People facing death, is there any hope of life? 
That kind of question brings us to what is the the central command of this chapter. Look at it there, verse 4. It's repeated again in verse 6. The Lord says, seek me and live. As we've seen, for all the religious activity, they weren't really interested in knowing God. I wonder, is that a call that you need to hear tonight? For all of your church activity, have you really stopped listening to God in his word? Have you stopped coming to him dependently in prayer? Is a living relationship with the Lord something that you're cultivating now? Or perhaps you're merely living off some distant memory of closeness to him? That's the sense, I think, in verse 5. Seek me and live. Do not go to Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. Now, that might not mean much to you uh, to begin with. It didn't to me. Uh, And we haven't got time to go into all the history. But but know this. These three places, you might think they're in pagan nations. That's what I assumed when I read it first. You know, the Lord is saying, seek me. You know, don't be like the other nations. Actually, all three of these places are in the promised land. And more than that, these are all places where God has done wonderful things for his people. So there are positive memories associated with these places. They're places where God revealed his presence, where God made great promises to his people, where God made provision for them in various ways. But the horrible irony is, you see, the people are happy to visit the religious shrines in these places, you know, that, that commemorated these great events. See, but they themselves had no present-day interest in seeking the Lord's presence or listening to and holding on to his promises or trusting his provision. Don't rely on the past. Don't even rely on being part of a busy church. Seek me and live, says the Lord. But look, maybe you just feel a bit worried now. You're thinking... Am I seeking the Lord? Well, I thought I was, but a lot seems to hang on it. Maybe I'm not. How would I know? How do you know if you're seeking the Lord? I guess there's many ways to answer that question, but you cannot escape the answer given in this passage, I don't think. And it is this. If you are seeking the Lord, it will show in your behavior. See, in the end, we, I guess it's true that we become like the thing that we worship, whatever that is. See, the Lord God loves justice. And those who seek him will, however falteringly, however failingly, they will come to love it too. And they will, for example, care about goodness being upheld in society. They, they will care about truth being told in our courts. They will care about the needs of the poorest and most vulnerable in society. Now, there are many people who might want to use a chapter like this to to claim that um, the mission of the church is just various forms of social action. You know, feed the poor, care for the sick, speak for the oppressed, and please don't let's bother with any patronizing nonsense about preaching the gospel. Please see that that's not what this chapter is saying. The solution for those facing God's judgment is not just to try and amend their behavior and do some more good stuff. The command here is first to seek God and then changed hearts and changed behavior flow from there. 
See, those who say, let's do away with proclaiming the gospel, they're really saying, let's do good without seeking God. And that is not the kind of repentance that Amos calls for. We are, in the words of verse 14, to seek good, not evil, but seeking good goes hand in hand and flows from seeking God. But there is another mistake I think that we might make here, and I would hazard a guess that this is the mistake that we here are more likely to make, and it's this one. That we would claim, that we would claim to be seeking God without doing good. And I reckon that's the heart of all the sham religion in this chapter. As we come to Jesus in faith, in the words of this chapter, as we seek God, we begin, it, perhaps in small, perhaps in faltering, nevertheless in real ways to be changed. How do we draw this together? Well, for any tonight who are here who, who wouldn't call themselves Christians... I guess in the words of this chapter, those who would say they haven't sought the Lord. What does this say to you? Well, please see that this chapter shows us, if nothing else, that we are not, by nature, good people who do good things. And this chapter would plead with you. In fact, it would do more than that. It would command you to seek the Lord. How and where do you do that? Well, you know that the God who is compassionate and gracious and kind and yet loves justice reconciled those things by sending his son, the Lord Jesus, to die so that he might bear the weight of the kinds of horrendous judgments that we've heard about in this passage so that you might not have to. Seek the Lord and live. And if you're a Christian here tonight, you might like to think, how can I uphold goodness and justice in society? Look, many of us do much of that and contribute to that in many ways, not not least through our jobs and the work we do. Remember as well that, that we are privileged to live in a society which, by global standards at least, is remarkably just and fair and where the rule of law is on the whole upheld. Remember, too, that many of those benefits were given to our society because of the prevalence of Christian faith in generations gone by. So ask yourself, what are you doing with your time and your money and your energy? What priorities are you setting in the big decisions of life? Finally, if you're a Christian here, and I very much include myself at this stage, who feels convicted that though we're pretty good and pretty practiced at putting on a good religious show, sometimes our behavior betrays the fact that we're not seeking God as we ought. Well, for you too, and for me, to come back to the cross. Again, see the God who loves compassion and mercy and kindness and yet upholds justice, the God who gave his only son, the Lord Jesus, to die on the cross in your place, that he might bear the kind of terrible judgment spoken of in in this passage so that you and I might not have to. Come back to the Lord Jesus. Seek God and live.